Welcome to the Westside Investors Network. Win your community of investing knowledge for growth. This is the Real Estate Professionals Investing Podcast for real estate professionals by real estate professionals. This show is focused on the next step in your career, investing. Thank you for listening. And please, if you like our content, rate us on your podcast provider. Just a quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are for educational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any shares or securities, make or consider any investments or take any other action. And now, AJ and Chris Shepard. Our next guest is the co-founding partner at Trowbridge Law Group. Gene's law practice concentrates on the syndication of commercial and investment real estate through both debt and equity. Here to discuss how to properly set up the syndication business and the difference between syndication and other partnership structures, please welcome Gene Trowbridge. All right. Today we have Gene Trowbridge with us. He is co-founding partner at the Trowbridge Law Group and author of the book, It's a Whole New Business, which has its fourth edition now out. Gene, thank you so much for coming on the show. We really appreciate it. Do you just want to give our audience a little introduction and tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Hi, Chris. Hi, AJ. Thanks for having me. Well, my career really has two major parts to it. The first part was being a commercial broker commercial real estate broker right out of college, and then venturing into the syndication business as I found some real estate I wanted to buy and I didn't have enough of my own money to buy it. So I put together a group and then that was a couple of years in Minnesota where I'm from. Then I moved to California and I thought I'd be a full-time syndicator. So I picked a product type like most good syndicators do. And I built self-storage. I built 32 self-storage facilities in Southern California during a period of all 15, 16 years. And I'd had enough of that. Enough. Yeah. I always say, you know, what do syndicators say? They say the care and maintenance of partners can sometimes be overwhelming. And back then in 1995, there were no companies that were providing back office services for you. So one year we sent out about 2,000 K-1s that we stuffed ourselves and sealed the envelopes and put the stamps on it Oof. and all that. It was brutal. So I just decided I'd had enough. It was a good run, made some money, had an income stream coming for the next, oh, six, seven years. Sure. Without doing anything. And I went home and sat at the kitchen table where all the great decisions in life and my life have been, and said to my wife, I was going to go to law school at 45. She was working, the kids were in school, and now I was going to go to law school. And she thought it was great. We talked about, it wasn't in the shop, it was something we talked about over the years. And so I headed off to law school and got through and passed the California bar. And so for 30 years now, I've been working on syndication law, real estate syndication law, doing for others what other attorneys did for me. And it's a good match. It's an easy practice of law. I never go to court. I specifically in my fee agreement say I don't do litigation. So (laughs) I love it. And I have a firm now called Trowbridge Law Group with six of us. We're all virtual ever since COVID, from Boston to Nashville to College Station, Texas, to San Francisco to LA. And it's federal law, so we do business everywhere. And so that's where I am right now. I'm a ripe young 75 years old and with no intention of retiring. I have no I have no outside interests. There's nothing I can do other than work. So I work. <laughs> So you've been doing syndication law for 30 years, 30 years now. Has the law evolved during that time? Absolutely. Actually, the big change in the law came when I was syndicating in 1981, where they brought out Regulation D and Rule 506. Before that, we didn't really know what an accredited investor was. We were kind of on our own. But when Regulation D came out, 506 came out, and 506 is 
now 506B. It hadn't changed at all since then. But as you know, they added 506C in 2013 in the Jobs Act, and that changed something. And since that, the changes are twofold. Number one, they took out the ability to count your equity in your home toward the $1 million net worth requirement, which was good. That was really Dodd-Frank that did that. Because we had just had, especially in California, we had people who were you know, 70 years old living on Social Security in a house that they bought for $35,000, three art bay, and it's now worth $4 million. And they're accredited. No, 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 no. So they, they took the homeownership equity out, which cut the accredited investor list in the country, they say, by about a third. Really? And primarily on the coasts, where, you know, the real estate is it's real expensive. And then in 2020, they came out and they made money raising a little easier by changing or adding some definitions to how you can determine if you're a credited investor. And that's always been, ever since the Jobs Act, uh, the SEC and the Congress are interested in promoting capital formation because this is where all, all the employment is in the country, all the small jobs. The last piece of information that I have from the SEC, and it comes out every year in March, so we'll have a new one coming out in a couple months, was that Regulation D, private placement, $2.2 trillion during the last 12 months that they studied it. That's more than the IPO business on Wall Street during the same amount of time. And it's just huge. It's just huge as far as raising money for startup businesses and big businesses who want to expand or go private. There's just a lot of really big companies that have done uh, 506 offerings to raise lots of money, lots of money. That's not the business we're in. I mean, my money raising sponsor, you know, our clients have gone from a low of, I think, $360,000 was the smallest offering I've ever done. And the largest offering I've done was $165 million. Interesting offering. It was line pool surgical centers that this group raised that money in 30 days from, wow. fam- from family offices. They had them all teed up. They had done some small deals. They had a track record. And away we went. It was fascinating. And then I did, I guess, good or bad, I did the first Grant Cardone offering his first regulation A, A-plus offer. Don't do business with him anymore, but that's probably the most infamous person I've done business with. Always looking for new clients. Always looking for new clients. During the last three years, guys, during COVID, our business has grown. Interesting, grown. I had a couple of sponsors die during that period of time, which would have been a challenge, except for my philosophy as if AJ, you came to me and said, you got an offering and I like the offering and I had the $50,000, the first question I would ask you is, AJ, if I give you my money, what happens if something happens to you? Yeah. Well, my brother's, uh-huh. my brother's here to handle that. Well, that <laughs> yep, here I am. <laughs> Our company policy is we won't do an offering if their manager is a single person, even if it's in an LLC. There's no. no- so the three groups we had with the lead, if you would, died. There were people behind them and didn't misbeat, protected the investors all the way through because of that, because of that philosophy. Yeah. You know, we tend not to think about stuff like that when we're putting deals together, but it's always yeah, something you have to plan for. So do you want to chat a little bit about the difference between a 506B and a 506C? Sure. And let's jump into that. Let's build a little background in that. I get homework. I call them homework calls. People calling me and say, I want to put together a group of five to 10 people to buy a property, but I don't want to be a syndication. Bad vocabulary. (laughs) A syndication is just two or more people or companies coming together to do some business. Like you go to the movies and they're 
all these logos of all these companies before the movie starts, that's a syndication. Some people bring in expertise, some people bring in money, some people bring in the marketing capabilities, that's a syndication. So the first thing I say, well, it's gonna be a syndication, but the issue is, is it gonna be a security? And so you kind of need to just drill down on that. And in that example, when I asked the person, well, with those people who are going to invest with you, are they counting on you to make the decisions? Yes. Okay. So that's the definition of a security when there's people investing money in a common enterprise, which would be the LLC. It doesn't have to be an LLC. It's just an mm-hmm. enterprise. They're all doing the same thing with an expectation of profit. That separates it from GoFundMe. You know, I haven't had a great vacation in a while. If you guys all throw in some money to my GoFunding page, I'll go on vacation. That's <laughs> there's, no, there's no profit motive there, but investment of money in a common enterprise with an expectation of profits with someone making it happen. Passive investors and active investor. Government has a vested interest in protecting the passive investors. They don't really care that much about the accredited investors because they're rich and smart, but they do have an interest in protecting the passive. So they came out with 506, rule 506. And what 506 said was, yeah, go ahead and raise all the money you want, which is interesting because in regulation A plus, you can only raise 75 billion. But in 506, you can raise all the money you want. You can have all the accredited investors you want. And then they went ahead and finally gave us a definition of accredited investors. And uh, you can actually have 35 investors who are not accredited. They have to be kind of smart. They have to be able to read the documents and make some decision alone or with their advisors that this is, is a good deal for them. But in order to manage the risk, the government limits that to 35 people. So if your deal goes bad and 35 people lose their investments, the government, I guess, would thought that's okay. You know, we can't police every single deal. So that's it. And no advertising. Okay, so that was 506C. And I worked with that all the while I was syndicating. And then the Jobs Act came along and said, you know, with all those accredited investors out there, why don't we put another provision. So they changed the name from 506 to 506B. And then they added 506C, which said, same thing, raise all the money you want from all the accredited investors you want. No sophisticated investors. You can advertise for investors. You can take investors you don't know. So the major difference between B and C is in B, you can't advertise. The idea is you know all the investors and all the investors know you. And even the accredited investors, because you know them, all they have to do is check a box if they're accredited. No further research on your part. But you go over to 506C, where you can advertise and you're going to take in investors you don't know. They're going to require a third-party verification pretty much on all those investors to see that they actually are accredited and then you can take them. So that's really the difference, advertising or not, check the box if you're an accredited investor or get a third party verification. That's really the differences. But of the $2.2 trillion I talked about earlier, 95% of that money is raised in 506B. No in 506B? 506B. Okay. No advertising. So I think the last statistic was in 506C, there might have been 600 million raised. Mm. But 506B were in the, you know, the million eight, the million nine range, something like that. But that makes sense in one way. Most of the money is raised to the broker dealer community. I mean, we do a lot of business. And I think over the years, since 2014, our clients have raised about $6 billion. Okay. That's not very much where in one year, the amount was $2.2 trillion. Yeah. So there's all that money being raised. It's all being raised in the broker-dealer. Very interesting. And so, they have a Rolodex. They have a database. <laughs> they have financial planning seminars and things like that. 
so they get to know people and then put them in the Rolodex and then go ahead and raise money from those people. So that's really where most of the money comes from. All right. So I've got a couple questions. Back to the security. So essentially, there's a thing called a joint venture. And what is the difference between a joint venture and, I guess, a syndication? Well, joint venture is a syndication. There's, by definition, there'd be two or more people okay. in the business. The question is, in a joint venture, there's no real legal entity called a joint venture. It's either a general partnership between two people. It could be two LLCs getting together. They take title in general partner, limited partner, LLC. That's how they take title, not as a joint venture. But the mm-hmm. reason people are interested in joint ventures is to skirt the securities law. If you had a bank that had a lot of money and you had a bulldozer and you went and bought a downtown block and you bulldozed what was there and the bank funded it and you guys did everything together and made all the decisions jointly, that'd be a a joint venture. Okay. And that would not be in a security because there's no one person managing the other person's money. The minute you have one person being active and the other person being passive, call it what you want, it's a security. That's why the second prong of the definition doesn't use any name of any legal entity. It just says a a joint enterprise. And so the enterprise can be almost anything. So that's what people want. They want to, I have a lot of brokers who had a client, a lot of money. And so they want a deal to do a deal with that client. They'll take 5% maybe for doing the work and the client will put up all the money and they want to keep it from being secured. Well, in that case, there's a vote. On every major decision, there has to be a vote. They would be two equal votes. We'd have to have a unanimous vote of two equals, regardless of how much money is put in there to do something. Or if the guy with the 95% ruled, you'd have a security because now he's handling my 5%. If I ruled, it'd be a security because I'm handling his 95%. So when you get down to having unanimous decisions, you're running into trouble given the number of people you have, right? So when something changes from a joint venture to a security, what are the requirements that... Well, every security has to be registered with the SEC unless it's exempt. And mm-hmm. an exempt security is Regulation D. There might be a couple of them. Regulation A is kind of exempt, but for this conversation, Regulation D is an exempt security. So now you're in Regulation D, and uh, the question is, and generally you get there because there's a manager. There's fourth prong through the results of someone else. So you get there, and you come down to either 506B or 506C. And then you just have to follow the rules of 506B or C. And if you don't, let's say you do a 506B and you post something on your website that says, boy, we've really got this great deal. We're paying a 6% preferred return and it's an 80-20 split and call us for the package. That's advertising. So now you've blown your exemption. So you, if anything goes wrong, You'll get sued, and the first thing they'll say is you sold a security that wasn't registered. And if you blew your exemption, they win. Okay, so don't blow your exemption. There are all sorts of rules. I think there are six rules we have to really stick with in, uh, in regulation D so we don't blow our exemption. And, and the they other, are. The <laughs> <laughs> other questions you want to know about how you stay out don't make it a security and stay out of trouble. Well, there are two other exemptions. Number one is the good deal exemption. Just make sure it's a damn good deal. And the other one is under the radar exemption. Because it's a small deal, even if someone gets burnt, no one's going to care. No one's going to pursue you. So if that's what you're working on, then good luck. <laughs> okay. Okay. Uh- <laughs> I like those. Well, 
Just make sure that it's a good deal. That is a pretty funny one. That's always the best. That's yep. always but you can't count on that because you never know. You know, hurricanes hit. Yeah. Hit, fires hit. Things hit. And now, here's a word from our sponsor. Get things done while you're on the move. Learn more about working with a virtual assistant through Offsite Professionals. It's a great way to get all the things done that you need to get done. Have freedom in your time and streamline your life by automating your business. Stop spending time on the tasks that you can delegate and start spending more time on your superpower. Call us today at 503-446-3177 or visit our website at offsiteprofessionals.com. I'm kind of curious, you know, there's, you know, you once it is a syndication and enterprise and it's exempt from 506B, 506C, like, is there certain requirements that the general partnership has to deliver to the passive investor over no. the course of that sort of investment? The premise behind the securities laws, there are two securities laws. One deals with the offering. And that says you have to give the investors all the material facts ahead of time so they can make an informed decision. Therefore, we have the requirement of a PPM because that's where you do all the disclosure and give them all the facts. Then to run the bill, because PPM is just a story. It isn't even, it isn't really even a legal document. The operating agreement is the legal document. So AJ, the answer to your question is, yep, we're going to draft an operating agreement and the manager better follow the operating agreement. And the operating agreement could be a page long. It could be 80 pages long depending upon what you want to put in there and what the rules are. And as long as the investors uh, get a chance to read it, ask any questions, and then sign the subscription agreement saying that they've read it, they've answered all the questions, that governs how it's run. And so a better answer to your question is, yes, the manager is not supposed to commit fraud. (laughs) Intentional Intentional fraud or just misrepresentation. You know, sending out quarterly reports that are wrong, hiding facts, stuff like that. Telling the investors everything's okay when it's not okay. That's really the requirement is fraud. And in my book, I spend the first two chapters talking about, well, fraud and intentional misrepresentation, all the ways you can get in that you can get in trouble, which takes you to a discussion, why would you want to be a syndicator? You know, I have people call me monthly. Hey, Gene, I'm in 20 deals as a passive. I want to be a lead. I want to be the syndicator now. And I just let it go quiet and say, why? Why would you want to do that? Haven't you made a lot of money as a passive now? Why don't you just do another 20? Oh, I want to make it quicker. Okay. So maybe they want to expand their money-making capabilities. They want to do something better. Well, that's one. That's a reason that you want to be a syndicator because there's profits in it, okay, as opposed to just being passive. So they have to want to do that. Yeah. But I always, I always say if you have enough money just to invest passively or buy whatever you want by yourself, don't get involved with partners because partners' lives change. You know, we pretty much know what's going on in real estate, right? But what about those 40 partners out there you may or may not ever have met in your seven-year holding period? What the hell is going to happen to one of them? And then they're going to come to you to solve their problem. Because you have their money. In my world, the money was in cement trucks as we were pouring concrete slabs and concrete tilled up walls. I didn't have any money once we got started. So how do you solve and investors' liquidity demands. It's an art. Did that answer yeah. the question okay, AJ? Just follow the operating agreement. Yeah, I mean, uh, I guess, I mean, typically, like, when we buy a deal, we have to, you know, the lawyers looking over, it kind of gets modified, the operating agreement. We send it back out to the investors. The, to the lender's sure. lawyers? The lender's attorney? Yeah, the, the lender's attorney. Yeah. Oh, yeah, because basically what the lenders are going to do, they're going to say something like this. I don't care what the F is in this document. Yeah. We're in charge. We, we've got a fund, right? We've got a deal right now where there's a sponsor who's got 16 deals that's gone, that have gone bad. And according to my documents, 
the members can vote vote this person out. 75%. Well, we have 90% voting the person out, but the document says the lender has control when it comes down to removing the manager. So now we're in the process of can we find someone else that the lender would accept because this guy has a lot of money and he signed the notes. So why would the lenders want him off the hook? So that's a can of worms, you know. Interesting. So I guess that was kind of getting back as like, I mean, are we required to give the investors a executed operating agreement once it's fully executed? Well, I, th- I think you are. Yeah. I think, you know, my PPM has in Article 11, a list of exhibits, which you would give to an investor. You give them the certificate, formation of the articles. You'd give them the PPM. You'd give them the operating agreement. You'd give them the subscription agreement. And you'd give them your property package, your investment summary. I call it Exhibit 4. So you give all that out. But in my operating agreements, the only place the investor signs is the subscription agreement. Yeah. And it's set up so that, you know, your signature on the subscription agreement acts as a signature on the operating agreement. So it's not a lot of paperwork going back and forth. Yeah, for sure. And, and you know, once again, full disclosure, shouldn't the investor know what the rules are as it relates to running the enterprise? Yeah, I would think so. Good answer. <laughs> I mean, but every enterprise is run a little bit differently. And so like, yeah. you know, and every they, they, they should have a copy of like all of that information. Sure, they should. And then the lender lets you know from what you told me about two or three weeks before the deal closes, you send the operating agreement to the lender who sends it to their counsel who comes back and says, you know, especially if it's a, some lenders weren't, single purpose entity language in the, in the operating agreement. Some lenders want a resolution to borrow in the operating agreement. I generally leave those things out. I have a place where it says SPE covenants reserved, resolution to borrow reserved. So I don't put it in there if they don't need it, but it, they'll come back to me with the language that they want and I'll just cut and paste and put it in there. Even springing member. Do you guys know what a springing member is? Have you heard of that? No. No. So on big loans, Fannie and Freddie, big loans, 30 million and up, they want a member that really isn't a member to start with. But when the last decision maker, the last person with authority in the manager entity is unable to act, the springing member pops up and takes over all the authority. And that's part of the operating agreement. The lender would look at the language and agree if the language is right. And then there's going to be some corporation that's going to be the springing member. You pay them a little bit up front. Then the corporation will have, they'll have right now, Chris. Chris is playing the role of springing member in the corporation today and signs, signs the operating agreement. Now, eight years from now, when we need a springing member, Chris has gone on to do something else, and now AJ has his job. Well, that's fine. Okay. But the corporation is always there. That makes things a little more complicated, but then because the, the springing member would have the right to fire the property manager and, and do all that with the lender's approval, of course. Is that for more people that don't have a partner and that's kind of like a succession plan? Is that what the intent is? It's a succession plan, regardless of how many people have the manager. In it. Yeah. It's just, it's a Fannie and Freddie requirement on big loans, period. Huh. You could, Very. Have, you could have the United States Congress member and they'd still have a springing member. And then of course, in today's world, Another document you may want to, you may have, and then you'd have to give to the investors up front is the tenant and common agreement. There's a lot of people who bought properties five, six years ago, have a lot of equity, and they don't want to pay taxes, and so the entity wants to exchange into a bigger property. And sometimes they don't have the money to do it all themselves, 
So let's say it takes 10 million to buy this particular property and you've got seven and a half coming out of an exchange. The sponsor goes and forms another LLC and raises two and a half in cash. And they go and take title of the property with tenants in common so that this group has a 1031 exchange. They have a deed, they're going to end up with a deed. That's what you need for a 1031 exchange, not an investment in a partnership, deed for deed. And then you have to tell the investors, and I don't know if they read it, you know, we tell them what the problems are with the tenant in common, and we give them the copy of that document. So AJ, the investor is going to be papered, plenty of paper. And one of the mistakes that I see out there in the field, and I don't know what the investors do, I think I know what the investors do, but the mistake I'm alluding to is that the sponsor isn't absolutely clear, the syndicator isn't absolutely clear as to what the documents say. You know, they should read them. It's going to take three or four weeks to get them ready. There's drafts going back and forth. Please study those. Please ask any questions. I can't read your mind. And I know that they don't read them because the most asked question is, and I have it four times in the PPM and twice in the operating agreement, that to buy an investment in this LLC is not going to qualify for 1031 exchange. Yeah. Okay. And so I'll have people say, oh, my God, I just found a guy with $2 million coming out of an exchange and he wants to buy 80% of this deal. I said, well can as a tenant in common. Yep. Uh, what? Okay, well, you know, do you want to read that together or do you just want to? <laughs> <laughs> so that's good. And there's a lot of that going on. So we're talking about raising money for deals a little bit. And I've seen this question out there multiple times. And is I guess a group allowed to bring in someone whose sole purpose is to only raise money? The answer to that is no. You can bring someone in to the manager LLC. That would be my suggestion. And they can raise money, but they have to have some function. As you see with FSAP, they have to have some material function other than money raising. Because if all they're doing is raising money, then they're, they should be a registered broker dealer. So, so that's, to, that's the requirement. Is that's they would, the requirement, right. And on top of it, they can't get paid. If anyone gets paid for raising money, they're operating as an unregistered broker. So I guess a common practice in syndication is that, you know, the GP is split up based on you know, things that partners are bringing to the table. Yeah, I think you can do that. You just have to, on audit, and what are the chances of being audited? Audited, I don't know. But on audit, they would come and say, okay, let's talk about all these GPs. What's their role? Are they actually fulfilling the role? I mean, I have seen potential clients come to me where they're going to have 10 people in the GP. And you wonder why. Well, they're all here because they can all raise money. Well, do you have 10 jobs for them <laughs> on this 100-unit apartment building? You know, each one cleans 10 toilets a month. I, you know, I don't know. <laughs> but I don't think that's going to work. So I won't do that. Let someone else do that deal and, and get that client in trouble. I, I just think that's wrong. I've seen it where they've gone so far and they've had letters of agreement with each of these people. They bring in the manager member entity. And says, you know, if you can't raise $500,000, you're not going to get your share. They're not really saying they're paying you. You're going to get 5% of the deal. But you can't get 5% of the deal unless you raise $500,000. That's commission. I mean, that's it. The rule is, let's see if I get the wording right, no transaction-based compensation. So if you're getting paid on the transaction of raising money, you better have a securities license. So I guess along with that question, and I guess this directly relates to that model is, you know, there are larger syndicators out there who are training others to, you know, get groups together where they're raising funds and then you can join as part of the That's GP. Fine. That's fine. Well, you know, I don't know about that, but if I were 
going to set up a fund of funds. You've heard that term, fund of funds. Fund of I funds. I raised a million dollars, and I had my million dollars that I raised as a security. I'm the sponsor. I've got it in an LLC, and you guys are raising $2 million. Why can't I bring my LLC in to be a member of your LLC? My group can be an investor, right? That's fine. People do that all the time. I have one group who does it over and over. They raise $5 million at a time. And the minimum investment for an investor is $250,000. And then they go out and their target is to find big syndications where the minimum investment is a million. And they'll buy a unit. But they'll buy five units in this entity. And you see if they have assets of over $5 million, the entities accredited, no matter who is invested in it. So they raise $5 million and then they go and they buy that. That's fine. Whether they become part of the general partner, I think that's problematic because why would you want to do that? They already have their own investors and they have their own promote and their own compensation package in their own security. That's the way to do that right now. There's an issue of being an investment advisor in a situation like that, because you're not really investing in the real estate, you're investing in the company. But in real estate, there's so many exemptions about being investor advisor. I hear a lot of people say, well, we got to be careful of that, but not really. So there's other models where the more you invest as an LP, the better of a deal you'll get. Like maybe you'll get a higher preferred return. I've written that, you know, the minimum and what did we have the last one? I think it was 250000 You got a different preferred return. And other than that, anyone can come in with 50000 Nothing wrong with that. On development deals, maybe there's a preferred return for the people who come in first. While the property is under construction, I have a client who we do a lot of that. The early investors get 6 7 8% preferred return from the time they put their money in until the property gets a certificate of occupancy. Mm-hmm. But that's paid at the sale or the refinance because there's no money to pay them while you're building the building. So sure, you can do that. Nothing wrong with that. I mean, money's money, you know. Pay a higher yield for people who come in early. Pay a higher yield for the bigger investors. Nothing wrong with that. So another question, you know, when it comes to raising money for a fund where you don't have a specific deal, is that still just a 506B or a 506C syndication? Absolutely. Even though you don't have an asset. So you- That's not part of it. You're raising money in the common enterprise. You're expecting them to find an asset. You're expecting to make a profit. And it's totally on the shoulders of the sponsor to find the property. Now, I, for anyone who's listening, Yes, you can do that. And their thoughts that there's going to be blood on the streets right now with raising interest rates and all this stuff that's going on. So maybe a fund would be a good idea. But don't try a fund without a track record. You can do it legally. I can, I can paper you up like crazy, but no one will invest because they're not sure you can implement your plan. Or they will until you, after you buy the first property. That's why you offer a preferred return for the early investors who come in and give you enough money to buy the first property. And don't try a blind pool to buy one property <laughs> because the people, you'll have to sell it hard to raise money to have a new bank. And then when you find the property, you'll have to go out to the people and show them the property and they'll make a decision whether they want their money back. So can you explain a blind pool? A pool is, is a plan to buy multiple properties. Actually, it's an acquisition strategy. If I have the money, I can compete with all the 1031 buyers out there, the cash buyers out there. I can show the seller that I can close. It's an acquisition strategy. Hopefully, you can get a good deal. Blind pool, meaning the investors are investing blindly based on the sponsor's experience and ability to go find properties that fit in their business plan. And so when you were saying don't raise funds 
in a blind pool to just buy one property. Oh, yeah, that doesn't work. And the other one is don't do stage pay-ins. Well, my minimum is 50000 And if you give me 10, I'll let you in the deal. And then I'll call you when I want the 40. Okay. You can't put a gun to anyone. Yet. If they don't like the property, they're not going to give you the 40. They'll lose their 10 before they give you another 40 that they're worried about losing. So that's the only way you can do that. And I did it when I was raising money through the broker-dealer community. We got, because I was doing two projects at a time. One piece of dirt, let's build this building, and we'll find another piece of dirt. We, we did stage pay-ins, but we had irrevocable line of credit, letters, irrevocable letters of credit from each investor. So that when it was time to have the money to do the second project, I just called the letters and the bank sent me the money. Had a little bit of a headache, but that worked. You would advise not to do that again, or you probably wouldn't oh, do that I, again. I, you know, I would advise not to do that. Yeah. So I guess I'm kind of confused. Like if someone is starting a fund, it most likely is a blind pool fund, right? Like we're... Generally, the word fund means you're buying more than one property. Yeah. It could be a blind pool, but it could be a semi-specific guided. We had a piece of dirt. We had the plans. We were ready to go. Let's raise money for that. At the same time I'm raising money, let's raise money for another place I haven't found yet. Okay. So that's a semi-specific fund. Okay. Generally, fund is, well, I shouldn't say that. People use all sorts of vocabulary. Yeah, diction is all over the place. (laughs) Generally, fund is not used when it's a a specified single asset. I'll tell you another one of my pet peeves in language, we're talking vocabulary here, is people saying, well, I'm going to be the GP and you're going to be LP. There's no such thing in an L in a limited liability company. You're members and there's a manager. If you're the GP, you're totally liable and you make all the decisions. And if you're an LP, you have liability protection, but you can't vote, you can't say anything. And a limited partnership by definition is a security because sponsor makes all the decisions. It's investment of money in a common enterprise with an expectation of profit through the results of the general partner, period. That's a security. So don't be saying, and I know people do it all the time, well, the GP is going to get 40%, the LPs are going to get a 6% preferred return. Well, no. I sometimes, being cynical, think that if you can't use the right vocabulary to talk about the business you're in, why would I want to invest? That might be harsh, but... So you prefer to hear, you know, members and then managers. That's what they are. Read the operating agreement. They're members. And we have a manager, period. And you know right away when someone does their own deal. I don't review other people's documents, but in the days when I did, I'd get a document that says, you know, the sponsor, the sponsor has started a limited partnership and is selling shares, and the managing member is so-and-so. Okay, so I've got spaghetti there in the first sentence. I know that the person wrote that themselves. No attorney should be writing so it's done. Okay. So having raised a lot of funds yep. in your life, what do you think are some of the best practices when it comes to fundraising? Someone told me this practice because this was a good fundraiser back in Minnesota. He was a friend of mine. He was a fellow CCIM and he had a big company. And he saw what I was doing. He took me aside and said, you're, you're going at it the wrong way. You're getting your document trying to sell. He said, you got to start with the database. And so this is what I tell everyone. The first thing you need to do is get a database going and find people who are interested in real estate, if that's what you're doing. Maybe you're doing cryptocurrency, I don't know. But if you talk to a guy who only does cryptocurrency and you got a real estate deal, first of all, you're wasting, you're wasting your time, right? Yeah. And... Secondly, what you have to do is you have to determine in your world of real estate, what is it that you're an expert at and what can you do to bring opportunities for the investors? What is it? 
build storage, or you're going to build an RV park, or you're going to do a single tenant retail. What is it that you know about, and what are the opportunities available that your investors can take advantage of if they invest with you? And then the third thing, you've got to sell your management team. Who have I put together so that we can capture those opportunities? And then the last thing you do is sell the offering. If you've got people who are interested in real estate, you're part of real estate, you've already sold them on your management team, the offering document will sell itself. And I always call that the sell the sizzle. Sell the sizzle of real estate, the sizzle of your part of the real estate world, the sizzle of your team, and the sizzle of your offer. As opposed to just going out and talking to anyone you know about your offer. There's too many, too many opportunities for them to say no. That's great advice. Yeah. Okay. So I have got a hard break here. You got some questions to ask me. We've been- <laughs> we were That's- just... We exactly. were headed right into that. And I'll get started us off quick. What's one piece of advice you would give to your 25-year-old self? I'll get started earlier. Sure. Don't you take chances. Get started earlier. Okay. The second question is, what was your first entrepreneurial endeavor? My first entrepreneurial endeavor when I was in high school in Minnesota, I borrowed money from my dad to buy a Toro combination lawnmower and snowblower. <laughs> and I cut a lot of lawns and I cleared a lot of driveways, and paid him back and made some money. Nice. That's a good one. That's a good one. Next, how has your formal and informal training shaped your journey? Oh, that's a good question. I saw that question. You know, I spent 40 years as a CCIM instructor. I don't know if you know what that is, but that's a pretty good real estate education program. And I spent 40 years as a senior there. All that teaching experience taught me patience. I was kind of a young rebel when I started that. And I I knew I was right. And I didn't need anyone to tell me to slow down. But Standing in a classroom for all those years taught me patience. And then my formal education of going to law school taught me that there's always more than two sides to every issue. The divorce lawyers say that there's three, his, hers, and the truth. (laughs) (laughs) So a combination of being being a patient person, seeing both sides, has made me a successful attorney because I'm a mentor. And I understand what's going on, and I think I can help people, and this is a great business to be in. So if I can help you get started, I'm thrilled. All right, Gene. Our final question, what was your biggest mistake, and what did you learn? My biggest mistake was as a syndicator, I brought a deal to the market before I had completed my due diligence. As a syndicator, I would go to conferences, financial planning conferences, and I'd have my booth. And all the other competition had their booth. And one, the International Financial Planning Conference came to Anaheim, or was coming to Anaheim, and I had a booth and I didn't have a product. So I rushed around and I found what would be a good product. I found a piece of dirt. I could build an office building on it. I had a letter of intent from a credit union that could take the ground floor and some other stuff. And so I went out and I put that to work. And what I learned is without the permit from the state, their paperwork to be a credit union was never approved. And now I raised money and I'm building a building with no tenants. So I I learned to dance. (laughs) (laughs) did you did you end up scrapping the deal or did you go through with it and find another tenant like what we built it i put an executive suite upstairs that i ran which took care of half of the building and then eventually we found a tenant for the lower half and it's really funny i found an automobile dealer who was right around the corner on a really main street on harbor boulevard he needed office space so we rented the ground level 
for office space. And when I'd had enough of all that, I went to him. True story. I went to him and I said, you know, you've got office space in there. It seems like you're crowded. The one thing you don't have in that building is signage. And for $800,000, I'll sell you signage rights and I'll throw in the building. <laughs> and so I sold it to him. And today that building is still his office with his big. Wow, that was probably an opportunity of a lifetime for him. Probably wasn't thinking about buying real estate. He was just in the cars. And one of our dad's favorite sayings was, more people got rich in real estate by accident than anywhere else. On purpose. <laughs> All right. Well, on me. We've got company at the house. I got to go. Gene, thank you so much. If our listeners want to get a hold of you or they want to contact you about putting a syndication together, where should they look to find you? Well, I think the first thing they should do is go to the website. And if they want a free consultation, fine. TrowbridgeLawGroup.com. They could call me directly at 949-855-8399, 949-855-8399. That's my direct line. And we've got a lot of great stuff on our YouTube channel. Awesome. Gene, thank you so much for being with us. And I hope you enjoy that kitchen table tonight. <laughs> yeah, have some wine for us. <laughs> I, have a million, I have a million stories about the kitchen table, but anyhow, that's my life. Okay. <laughs> All right. See ya. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Real Estate Professionals Investing Podcast on WIN, your community of investing knowledge for growth. We hope that this episode has increased your knowledge and added value to your path to freedom. If you would, please take a second to rate us so that we can get more great investors to interview. If you or someone that you know wants to be on, please visit westsideinvestors.com and fill out our form to be on the show. Thank you again and enjoy your day.